God, it is an incredible, incredible gift that we worship a God who speaks. A God that is not dead, but a God that is alive. And we rejoice that you have given us your word, and in that word you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. And so, Father, this morning we ask that you would speak to us, that you would continue to speak to us until your return, that you would continue to cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see how incredible, incredibly glorious you are. God, we confess that you are building your church and we ask that you would continue to do so. What an incredible promise that you are at work still to this day. Bless this time in your word, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we uh, turn our attention to Mark again this morning, uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 30, and I didn't say that wrong. It's not a typo uh, in your bulletin. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 30 um, it is appropriate this morning just, I think, to remind ourselves uh, of one of our core commitments here at Crosswinds, uh, and it is centered here on the Word of God. We are going to be looking at a passage that is relatively gruesome. It is a passage that uh, we, you may be, may be wondering, what on earth are, are we doing looking at that this morning, the beheading of John the Baptist? And uh, one of our core commitments here at Crosswinds uh, is, is simply uh, to, to exposit the Word of God. We believe all of God's Word is, is, uh, is breathed out by Him. Everything that we find in the Bible is actually Scripture. And so uh, the reason why we're looking at this text is because we looked at the text before it last week. And so we've come to this one this morning. Uh, we are committed to, to the supremacy of God's word. And, and uh, we believe and we are expectant that God is going to speak to us through a passage, even such as, as unique as this one. And uh, I'll, I'll say this past week, as I've been studying this text, man, it's just been, it's been so good for me to, to open God's word, to, to look at this passage. Um, and, and God's spoken to me. He's convicted me. And, and I hope he does the same thing for you. Uh, this morning. So as I said, Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 14 through 30. Last week we were in uh, the fir- uh, ne- uh, previous few verses, Mark 6, 7 through 13, and that's this passage where Jesus is sending out his apostles. He's sending them out to, to continue his ministry in the, the region of Galilee. And one of the things that we saw last week is that Jesus has, has commissioned us as well. He has called us to go out and serve him as well. And that calling is going to look different for each and every one of us. Some are going to be called to the other side of the globe. And some of us are going to be called to the other side of the street. But wherever we are called, whatever our our role is in participating in Jesus' mission, we are to continue that mission. And this morning's text is a continuation of last week. One of the things that we've seen in, in the Gospel of Mark to this point is he loves using this literary device uh, to, to kind of prove his points. And, and we've called it very creatively the literary sandwich or the Mark sandwich. Mark will start a story, and, and that's like the first slice of bread. And then he'll press pause on that story, and then he'll jump to another story. And that's like the innards of the sandwich. And if you were my, my children, it would only be peanut butter and jelly. And then you transition back to that first story, uh, which is your other slice of bread. And one of the things that Mark is doing that for is because he, he weaves these stories together because he believes that he can make a, a greater point, that we can understand God more fully when we have these things together 
than we would if we were just to look at these two stories individually. And that's what Mark is doing this morning as well. Mark starts with last week's passage, this commissioning of the apostles. He sends them out into the mission field to to be God's representatives, to, to continue the mission of Jesus. And then he presses pause on that. And then he he looks at this flashback, this story of John the Baptist's death. And then he goes back. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, just one verse, he tells us the results of the apostles being sent out through all of Galilee. And what is Mark trying to tell us by weaving these two stories together? I think the most basic answer One that we're going to see this morning is simply that he's trying to address these two pitfalls that each and every one of us faces as we are trying to be obedient to Jesus, as we're trying to be his disciples, as we're trying to follow and continue his mission. There are going to be these two pitfalls that we will face. On the one side of the road, there is this pitfall that that, uh, comes from being just simply naive. It is easy for us when we are thinking about participating in the mission of Jesus to think that if we are just in God's will or if we are doing God's will, then we're going to be met with radical success. That if we believe enough, that we are winsome enough, then people are going to respond positively to the message of the gospel. Or another way of describing this and probably more common for us today is we can have this assumption that hostility toward us as, as Christians and hostility toward our faith, that it will, it will disappear if we were just a little bit more winsome, if we were just a, a little less hypocritical, if we were just a little more like Jesus, if we were just a little bit more loving and, and faithful. But the story of John the Baptist here, he smashes that illusion to pieces. Jesus himself smashes that illusion to pieces. Part of being Jesus' disciple means to be an alien and a stranger in this world. Being a disciple means that you will suffer, that you may even lose your head. And the message of this gospel is, is offensive to many people, especially to people like Herod. And no amount of thoughtfulness will change that. So that's one pitfall that we have to, to avoid, this, this uh, sense of, of being just too naive. But there's, a, there's another story, that, or another pitfall that we have to uh, address, and that, that's the other side of the ditch, and that's where, that's where Mark comes back with Mark chapter 6, verse 30, and that's simply just being too cynical. It is so easy to read this story of John the Baptist and just put a, a grim face on and say, well, then it looks like it's just me versus the world. And we can have an attitude like that. Whenever we see someone repent, we can skeptically say, well, we'll see. And so Mark weaves these two stories together by by saying, if you're participating in Jesus' mission today, there's going to be hostility that is involved, but also you will see fruit. Notice the report of Jesus' apostles as he sends them out. In Mark chapter 6, verse 30, he says says this, the apostles returned to Jesus, and they told them all, They had done and taught. Luke, when he's describing this, he goes into a lot more detail about the report, and he makes it very clear that they are on cloud nine, that they were met with success as they went out, and they pointed people to Jesus, and and they actually listened to them. And Now, now everyone didn't repent, but but many did, and they were ecstatic about their role in participating in Jesus' mission. And Mark is writing to this church that is facing hardship. 
in the first century in Rome. They're, they're facing this increasing persecution, and he writes to tell them that, hey, you know what? You can expect hardship. You can expect suffering. It's just part of being obedient as Jesus' disciple. If you're going to be obedient to Jesus, if you're going to be obedient to his mission, then you are going to face hardship. But he also writes to tell them that that's not the end of the story, that we can also expect results, that we can expect fruit. And we may not see it, but we can be confident that it is there, that there is no one that is too far gone for God's grace, and God can work in and use anyone. So don't lose hope. And this text, in the, in the context of Mark as a whole, uh, really tries to weave these together. And, and this morning, we're just going to look at both of these things. We're going to look at this story of John the Baptist as he is beheaded. And, and honestly, if you, if you just read this uh, text on a, on a surface level, it can kind of seem like his, his death is just pointless. And on the surface, it is. I don't use that word pointless lightly. We'll soon see that the ultimate reason that John dies is because Herod doesn't want to be embarrassed. John loses his life because Herod wants to protect his honor. And if you are facing what seems to be pointless hardship today, I hope this text is an encouragement to you. Let's follow this text, and what we're going to see, uh, this flashback concerning John the Baptist, and, and we're just going to walk through the text this morning and see what Mark is trying to tell us. So uh, beginning in verse 14 and 15, we see that Mark starts with just this introduction to this flashback. Let's, let's pick up in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Now remember, this text comes right after the previous section, this first piece of bread. Jesus is sending out his apostles. And word of, of Jesus sending out these apostles has reached, to, it's reached Herod. Now, now we'll look uh, a briefly. Uh, we'll look at Herod briefly um, in a, in a few moments. But at this point, just know that Herod is the ruler of Galilee. He's the Roman uh, Roman appointed ruler of Galilee. That's where Jesus lives. He's the the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the the guy who, in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, tries to kill Jesus. Um, in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew as well, and uh, he he's different. This is a different guy than his father. Um, this is uh, someone who's, who's oftentimes known as Herod Antipas, okay? So Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great from the beginning of the Gospels. So word about Jesus is spreading throughout Galilee, and, and with it are these questions about who exactly is Jesus. Remember, one of the things that we've seen is, is the first half of the Gospel of Mark. Mark wants us to ask that question ourselves. Who is Jesus? And there are a lot of opinions that are flying around Galilee about who Jesus is. And some people are saying, well, Jesus is actually John the Baptist. John the Baptist may be dead, but he's, he's now risen from the dead. And that's the reason why Jesus is able to do all these miraculous things. When he rose back from the dead, John the Baptist now has all these supernatural powers with him. Other people are saying, well, he's actually Elijah. Elijah never died in the Old Testament, and the book of Malachi tells us that, that Elijah will come back before the Lord returns, and so these people are hoping that this is actually Elijah return, and he's doing these miraculous things just like Elijah did, and God's kingdom is just around the corner. Other people are just saying that, well, Jesus is, is just one of these Old Testament prophets, and, and earlier in, the, in, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus says, hey, I'm kind of like one of these prophets, 
And so they say, hey, you know what? Uh, Let's not get too carried away. Jesus isn't this person who's risen from the dead. He's not Elijah come back, but he is like one of the Old Testament prophets. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus, and these opinions begin to reach the ears of Herod Antipas. And it's likely that he, he knows uh, uh, that all of these different opinions, and he has one as well. And his conclusion uh, gives us the backstory between him and John the Baptist, uh, picking up in verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. What a fascinating description of what's taking place here. Now, What is Herod's conclusion as he's hearing all of these different things about who Jesus is? Well, in verse 14, we see him say that he thinks that Jesus is actually John. And what's more, Herod, being a pagan, he doesn't believe in Christianity or Judaism at that point. He has these superstitions and I think a a guilty conscience. He begins to conclude that John, this man that he killed, has now come back from the dead and he's going to haunt him. He's going to haunt him for killing him. Now, why does he hold such this ridiculous belief? And that's where this backstory comes into play. Uh, let's go ahead and throw that, um, that uh, genealogy up there. This is uh, in, in your sermon notes on your phone. It's also out on the, the connection desk. It kind of describes all of these different people uh, that are mentioned uh, under the name Herod in the New Testament. And there are a lot of them. Uh, we're probably familiar, as I said, with Herod from the Christmas story. Herod from the Christmas story ruled over most of Palestine. He's the guy who tried to kill Jesus at the beginning of the Gospels when he uh, finds out that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Herod is a wicked man. Um, uh, that's probably pretty obvious to you. He has 10 wives, and he has a lot of of sons from these different women. Now, after his death, which happens, uh, actually is recorded in Matthew chapter 2, after his death, three of his sons split up his kingdom, and they begin to rule over different portions of that kingdom, and one of those is named Herod Antipas, this person that we're looking at this morning in this text uh, named Herod. Now, this is where it gets really confusing for us. Herod has a son named Herod Philip and another son named Herod Philip. So if you think that you're struggling with calling your children the wrong name, imagine how, how hard it was in the, the Herodian household here. Uh, he has two sons named Philip. One of them is a ruler to the north of Galilee, and uh, another one of them, he's just a common citizen. He actually moves to Rome. He's just living as a private citizen in Rome. And our story is not about Herod II, this ruler. It's about Herod the first, or excuse me, Herod Philip II. It's about Herod Philip I, who is this common citizen who is living in Rome at the time. All right, so the story goes, and this has been recorded by uh, ancient Jewish uh, historians, the story goes that he, uh, Herod Antipas, went to Rome to visit Caesar. And on his way to Rome, he decided to stay with his brother Herod Philip I. While he's staying with his brother, he falls in love with his brother's wife, Herodias, who actually also, if, if you look at that, is also his niece. Um, it's, it's quite the family tree there. Uh, he falls in love with his, his brother's wife, and he asks her, when he's leaving to go back to Galilee, he asks her, hey, can you come with me? And she says, I'll, I'll do it, but first you've got to divorce your first wife, And so he does, and then Herod leaves 
or Herodias leaves Herod Philip and moves in with Herod Antipas with her husband's brother. Is that confusing enough? All right, so that's what's taking place here. All this happens during the, the ministry of John the Baptist. And remember the, the uh, focus of, of John's ministry. John chapter 1, verse 4 tells us, or excuse me, Mark chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that John comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Mark is all, or John is all about repentance, and that's the essence of his ministry. It's to repent because God's kingdom is coming. And it doesn't matter for John if you are a powerless anonymous farmer in Galilee, or you are the most important, most powerful person in Galilee, this message of repentance is for you. And so he begins to declare to Antipas himself, hey, your marriage to Herodias is unlawful. It is despicable in God's eyes. And this is true from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus tells us that it is unlawful. It is an abomination in God's eyes. To do such a thing with your husband or your brother's wife. And this goes on for some time, and, and John is continuing to say, Hey, repent, Herod, repent, repent. And eventually, Antipas, and more importantly, Herodias, they have had enough of it, and so they arrest John. But Antipas, Herod Antipas, doesn't have him executed, and that ticks Herodias off. She's a strong woman. She, she hates being told how to live, and so she wants John killed, but Herod decides not to do that. And why? Well, Mark tells us that Herod is perplexed by John. He's curious about John's message. Now, don't get me wrong. Herod hated to be told he had to repent, and yet there's this piece of him as drawn to this message of repentance of the coming kingdom of God. And so he keeps John alive. He knows John is righteous. He knows John is holy. And from time to time, he brings him out, and he says, tell me more about this message of the kingdom. And undoubtedly, in those moments, John the Baptist says, hey, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent. Just as he would to, to anyone and everyone who would listen. Now, now, Herod doesn't reject the message of the kingdom outright. He doesn't reject it and kill John but he keeps it at his arm's length. So that way he can get rid of him or he, doesn't ha- he can bring him out whenever he wants and just whenever it's convenient to him. Now, I, I, can't, I can't prove it, but I think a part of this is, is because Herod has his guilty conscience. He's not a Jew, but he's, a, he's familiar with the, the law of his subjects. He knows what he's done is wrong and he knows that John is right. And it doesn't, it doesn't sit well with him. He just doesn't want to admit it. And we've seen this type of, of reaction to the message of, of Mark earlier, haven't we? This is the same reaction that the crowds have to Jesus. Fascinated with this surface-level interaction, with this surface-level understanding of the message, but never actually heeding the content of the message. But for the crowds, that type of relationship with Jesus, it amounts to nothing. It does us no good. We're not doing God any favors when we say we're becoming his disciples. God isn't pleased or he's not impressed with partial or superficial obedience any more than a parent is when their children only obey halfway. Partial obedience is always complete disobedience. And Herod is just like the crowds. He's marginally interested in God here. He knows what he's doing is wrong. But instead of heeding the message to repent and turn to Jesus. He just keeps John at arm's length. 
And as we'll soon see, he's ultimately lost forever because of it. And this goes on for an undisclosed amount of time. He, he's, John is imprisoned, and, and he's brought before Herod, and, and he tells Herod to repent. And, and Herod's like, wow, this is, this is fascinating. I got my own little court jester who tells me about Jesus, or tells me about God. And uh, then he sends him, sends him back. And eventually things come to a, to a head on Antipas' birthday celebration. He makes this foolish oath. Let's take a look at that oath, starting in verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. So Antipas throws this huge par uh, party for himself and, uh, and just has uh, all of his, the cultural elites come. Ancient birthday parties are not at all what we think of. Jews didn't celebrate birthday parties in the first century. Only um, pagans did. Uh, it's exactly what you would think from a pagan party. Uh, a lot of debauchery, a lot of, of lewdness that's taking place. And so Antipas, he's throwing this party at his, uh, his um, place of residence, and he's undoubtedly drunk at this moment, and uh, he, he, he's with all of his buddies, and he asks someone, he says, hey, go get my stepdaughter. Go get my stepdaughter. Her name is Salome, and Salome, uh, she's probably 12, 13 at the time, and brings Salome out to dance for everyone that is there. And excavations have revealed that, that Herod's banquet, or his palace had two banquet halls, the main banquet hall was only for the men, and the only time that a woman would come into that banquet hall was for illicit acts. And so when Herod is asking Salome to come before all of these men in the banquet hall, we know exactly what's taking place. This isn't an innocent dance. This is a very explicit, suggestive dance, and all these drunk men are overcome with lust in addition to the fact that they're drunk. And because Antipas is, is unable to control himself, he makes her an oath, this 12-year-old girl an oath. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Let's see what takes place next. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want, to give, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but... Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Salome, this girl, and, and we know her name is Salome based off of uh, this ancient Jewish historian named Josephus. Salome, she leaves the banquet hall and she goes and talks with her mom. She says, hey mom, oh, what should I do? What should I ask for? And her mom sees her chance here. Remember, she wants John dead. If Herod in this story is this picture of this surface-level interest in the gospel, Herodias is this picture of outright hostility toward the gospel. She wants nothing to do with it. She wants John dead. And so she sends her daughter back with this request. Give us John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now, why, why such a gruesome request? Why not just ask for him to be killed? It's because Herodias wants to gloat. She wants everyone to see that this man who condemned her, this man who told her to repent, 
This man who had the gall to say, you need to change your lifestyle. She has victory over him. Everyone can see that she is the one with the last laugh. Now, when Herod receives this request, he hears it. He's overcome with grief. Remember, he doesn't want John dead. And now, we come to to verse 26. Verse 26, there's this powerful moment in the first half of this verse. It's a supremely important moment in this story because even in the midst of all of this depravity, Herod has a choice before him. Herod has a choice, choice before him. He can... And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. Yes, John's life hangs in the balance, but I think even more so, at this moment, Herod's life hangs in the balance. He has two options before him. First, he has an opportunity to repent. He can repent in this moment. Or will he follow through with the oath that he made in haste? You see, there's nothing that's obligating him to follow through with this oath. Yes, he may be embarrassed in front of his friends. He's going to lose some honor, but the call of the gospel always costs us something. And for Herod, it starts with his pride. Will Herod kill his pride, or will he kill John? Will Herod kill his pride and find life, or will he kill John and find death? You see, here's the thing about Herod. He loves himself more than anyone or anything else. The most important thing to him is this illusion of honor that he has. And so he will sacrifice anything, including John, in order to save his pride. John is killed here because of his commitment to righteousness, yes. But more immediately, the cause is unbelievably, painfully meaningless. John is not killed while preaching. John is not killed while he's out helping and feeding the poor. His end doesn't, his life doesn't end in this incredible object lesson of of how great Christ's love for us is. He is denied such a powerful death. Instead, he simply dies because Herod doesn't want to be embarrassed. And can you imagine being John at this moment? Here's John. He's sitting in this prison cell in the basement, and he hears these feet down the hall approaching him, and he's assuming that he's about to be brought out to have one of these talks with Herod again. But then the cell opens, and there's two people there. One of them has this sword, and and John says, hey, what's, what's going on? And the guy with the sword says, shut up. Get over here. Kneel down. If you struggle, we will hold you down. John says, why? What's going on? Well, the king's stepdaughter, she danced. And she asked for your head. And we're here to take it. And John has about 20 seconds left in his life. And that's the last thing that he is thinking about. He's processing there. But what's going on? This life that has been dedicated to God from birth is now gone because of this meaningless act. It's a terrible end to this story, isn't it? Just awful. The end of John's life looks horrifically pointless. 
This man who has done virtually everything that he can to obey God, to be faithful to God, does everything God asks him to. This man who's been faithfully proclaiming this message of the kingdom his entire life meets his end in a prison cell in pagan territory because some drunk who is overcome with lust for his stepdaughter wants to maintain an illusion of honor. Terribly meaningless. It's not fair. And you read this story, and maybe you're overcome with, with anger, and you say, come on. How is that remotely fair, God? And maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Maybe you've gotten to a point where you just, you just don't understand. The suffering and the hardship just seems pointless to you, uncomprehendingly meaningless to you. And you've cried out to God, how is this fair? When I read this story, um, it reminds me of a story that I've shared at least once before. Back in August 2016, there was this um, couple, late 20s, I think they were 29, Jameson and Catherine Powell's. Uh, they, were, um, they were leaving Minneapolis, and they were driving to Nebraska, through Nebraska to Colorado. And they had felt God called them to the mission field, and they were going to go serve as missionaries in Japan. Japan, if you're familiar with it, one of the most difficult places to share the gospel. One of the most uh, needed places for missionaries today is to break into that culture. And these people, they, they're in their late 20s, and they feel like God is calling them into the mission field. And so they are driving from Minneapolis through Nebraska to Colorado, where they're going to be sent out as missionaries to, to participate in God's mission. And on their way to Colorado, they are killed by an unattentive driver. They're killed instantly along with their three children, their lives, snuffed out before they have even a chance to be missionaries. And maybe this story means so much to me because they're essentially the same age as my family. They're a couple that met at a small Christian college like me and my wife did. They have the same child order that we did, boy, girl, boy. They have children that are like the exact same age as us. But they, they're ready to surrender everything to God and go out to Japan. They're willing to pay this ultimate price for the gospel. And they pay the ultimate price because person wasn't paying attention while they were driving. And it seems like it's utterly meaningless. What is the point here from our earthly perspective? From our perspective, it, it seems like it would make much better sense for them to go to Japan and meet an, an incredible, uh, difficult, yes, but a, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful death as missionaries, not in a car accident. And church history is filled with stories like this. People who have been willing to surrender everything to the call of the gospel, to bring it to the furthest reaches of the globe. And people that the author of Hebrews would say that the world is not worthy of them. And they die before they get there. They die because of misunderstanding and language barriers. They die because of sickness. And we look at those things and we say, would not God be better served by deaths that were a little less pointless? And now I hope you realize that I'm using that term intentionally. Not to belittle these things. But because from our perspective, so much of life looks pointless and meaningless to us. 
And the key to overcoming that, that feeling of meaninglessness, is to look at the end of Mark's story. You see, Mark ends not with this statement that John is dead, that the depraved party is going on, that Herod still reigns, that Herodias gloats. That's not how he ends. He ends by saying that the gospel is not conquered. That the gospel is not conquered. That's how Mark ends. Not with the gloating of this wicked woman, but instead with this foreshadowing of the promise of redemption. Verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. There are only two texts in the book of Mark that don't directly deal with Jesus. Mark 1, 2 through 8, and this text here. Both of them focus on John the Baptist, and they both focus on how John foreshadows Jesus. And Mark 1, John foreshadows Jesus's coming, or he's a forerunner of Jesus's coming. And here, John is the forerunner of Jesus's death. The parallels here between John and Jesus' death, they're just astounding. It's very intentional from Mark. Mark chapter 6, Mark 14, 15, they're, they're, they're throughout. John dies at the hands of a political tyrant, Herod, who doesn't want to kill him, but instead does so anyway because of a fear of someone else. Jesus dies because of a political tyrant, Pilate, who doesn't actually want to kill him, but is afraid of the crowds, and so eventually does. John's death is the result of a political tyrant being manipulated by someone else, Herodias. Jesus' death is a result of a political tyrant being manipulated by someone else, the priests and the scribes. John is a righteous and innocent man. Jesus is the righteous and innocent man. Some of John's uh, disciples show up and, and take his body at their own uh, great risk to themselves to bury it. And some of Jesus' disciples do the exact same thing. From a worldly perspective, John's death looks completely meaningless. And from a worldly perspective, Jesus' death on the cross looks completely meaningless, as though God has made a mistake. Now ask yourself, did God make a mistake on the cross? And the answer, of course, is no, that there has never been a death that is more meaningful, more significant in human history. And so by making connections here between John's death and Jesus' death, by tying in what the apostles are doing in their message in verse 30, we can rest absolutely confidently that no suffering that we experience is ever going to be meaningless. You see, without Jesus' death, everything that we experience, suffering and death, every hardship is meaningless. Useless suffering, cynicism abound. But because of Jesus' death, nothing is ever meaningless for those who are found in Christ. The sacrifices that we make in obedience to the gospel are never meaningless. They produce this bountiful harvest, this glorious reward. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose heart at the gloating of Herodias or this prospering of Herod here. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. 
You see, I think that's what Mark is ultimately trying to tell us here in this text. There is no such thing as a meaningless hardship for those who are covered in the meaningful death of Jesus. There's no such thing as meaninglessness in our lives if we are a part of the totally meaningful death and resurrection of Jesus. When we are tempted to despair in hardship, we can rest that God is in control. And so the question we have to ask as we look at this text is this. Are we going to follow the way of Herod? Or are we going to follow the way of John? Right now, are you following the way of Herod? Or are you following the way, the way of John? The way of Herod serves as a warning to us. Herod, very familiar with the message of the kingdom. He's heard John time and time and time again. He's heard this message of repentance. And what does Herod do? Well, he knows it's right, but he never acts on it. He never responds with repentance. He never lets the message of the kingdom actually transform his life. And for this unknown amount of time, Herod tries to play this game, keeping the message of the kingdom close, but not actually close enough where it actually changes him. And things spiral out of control this fateful night when he makes this foolish oath, and he's faced with this decision. Everything has finally come to a head. He must either respond with repentance to the message of the gospel and repents, or he could ignore it once and for all. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you're at a place where, like Herod, you're intrigued with the message of Jesus, you enjoy the idea of church, you enjoy the people that you get to connect with, and that you think that as, as long as you got Sundays going for you, then you're going to be all right in the end. Don't be deluded, this text tells us that there will be a day when you are forced to make a decision, and where we all are forced to make a decision, just like Herod. God refuses to let us play sides, play both sides of the fence. So how will you respond? You see, Herod makes his decision, and it ultimately concludes that he thinks that the sacrifice of repentance is not worth the sacrifice of his pride, and he's grown accustomed to living this life of, of luxury, this life of, of debauchery. At the end of the day, he's unwilling to give it all up. No matter how much he may have known about the gospel, he's unwilling to give these things up. This text warns us, don't be de deceived. While the end of this story may seem like Herod is the one who is victorious, that Herodias is the one who is victorious, we all know the rest of the uh, story. Actually, history tells us that Herod, shortly after this, is exiled forever, and he spends his life in exile. But even more, we know from the perspective of eternal history, it is not Herod who stands ultimately victorious, but John because of the cross of Christ. Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest of those born among women. For all of eternity, he stands justified, vindicated against Herod. For all of eternity, John is a king. And for all of eternity, Herod is nothing. All because of Herod's unwillingness to heed the message of the gospel and repent. Let Herod's life be a warning to us. There's another path here, another way before us, and that's the way of John. In that moment, John appears to lose 
everything. He has been a forerunner for the kingdom of God. He has been a forerunner proclaiming the message of the kingdom of the coming Messiah, and he never gets to see it. The moment Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom, John is now in prison. He never even gets to see this message or this ministry of Jesus in Galilee. He dies alone, far from the spotlight, and his death appears to be meaningless. Nothing but the the whim of this angry, drunken tyrant. I don't know what your life holds for you. It may appear to have a lot of meaninglessness, a lot of pointlessness to it. You may experience hardship and rejection because of your commitment to the gospel, but John's life is a reminder that we will be vindicated and that because of the meaningful death of Jesus, our suffering and even our death will never ever be meaningless. That through it all, God is at work in ways that we can't even begin to fathom. And that's why this text ends with a note of hope on the return of the disciples. The life of the Christian is one that is mixed with hardship for the gospel and incredible joy at the power of the gospel. There's no such thing as meaninglessness in our lives for those who are covered in the meaningful death of what Jesus has done for us. There will be vindication. There will be everlasting joy. There will be an unfathomable glory. Paul writes famously in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is nothing meaningless for those who are found in Christ. The sacrifice of following Jesus may be high, but it is never meaningless. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the life of John the Baptist... We confess that so often life seems random. So often life seems like it's ruled not by a sovereign Lord, but instead by chance. And we ask that you would help us to see that you are God, that you are still reigning, and that you are good. Help us to have faith that sees hardship not as something to avoid at all cost, but instead as something that is not worth comparing to the future glory that is set before us. Give us faith, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.